Well, good morning. It's so good to see y'all and uh, to hear you sing. And I just want to say, I really do love you guys. I was watching you sing praises to Jesus, and I just can't tell you what it does to encourage my heart. And, uh, and that being said, I, I was also this week looking forward to getting back into our study in Revelation. So we are going to do that, and we're in Revelation 11. And uh, Mike did a marvelous job of reading the text, and if you were following along in the text, you might be asking yourself the question, what is this about? We've come to church on uh, Sunday, and it's November 6th, and it's a great season, and we just read how that there are going to be two witnesses that are going to be martyred and left in the streets, and then uh, lots of other things going on. Well, I asked myself the question too, how do I... Get back in from the break we've taken and into the book of Revelation. And uh, you helped a lot today with that, actually, because you sang a lot of the sermon. So thank you. You're supposed to say you're welcome anyway. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, we're going to get into Revelation 11 here in just a moment. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you because I I really do believe Revelation 11 is, is so relevant to where we live today. I think the world's a little off. People are telling me that constantly. I think things are messed up, broken. And, and I think you're right if you're saying that. Things just don't seem quite like they should be. But I want to tell you from Revelation, they are exactly as they ought to be. And I want to encourage you. This is actually in a very encouraging passage. And this is an encouraging day for us as a church because we're working on our 2023 budget. And uh, why is that encouraging? Because 2023 budget sets the agenda for us for the next year. Now, we have a very special theme. We'll be sharing that with you soon. Uh, what we'll cover next year, they'll be encouraging to you, I think. But as well, setting a budget that's, that says this is what we have envisioned to do, uh, carrying out the mission of God. And all of us today as church members are turning in our commitments, what we believe God's leading us to give, or maybe it's what you've given in the past, but for some of you, for the very first time, stepping in and saying, you know what, we're going to support the ministry that God has here financially, and you're helping. And that will enable us to set our budget. What we want to do is three phases. Our first phase, probably take a couple of years, our first phase is to build a building to replace our modulars that we need to replace. Uh, That building is an estimated $5 million. Um, Is it $5 million? Who knows? If it's five or six, but right now that's the estimate. And if you just took in the next two years that one phase that we're trying to tackle and add that $5 million to our two-year operating budget, that's getting close to our $14 million. So that's telling you that we're not just trying to spend a lot of money on a lot of things right now, but we do have a lot in vision. We want to reach people for Christ. And uh, you know that we want to remodel this room, but that's not something we're even talking about until phase one is done. And when we remodel this room, it's to make the sight and sound better. Uh, not, not a ton going on there, but we'll get to that later. So, that, so thank you, thank you, thank you for praying through. And over this month, we'll be handing in our commitment cards to help us to finalize our budget. And so would you, would you pray for those who are also still praying through that process? I will tell you this as testimony, that what, part of what we want, and this is what um, we talked about last week, David gave, he wanted to build a temple, but he couldn't because God gave that to his son. But David gave so that his children would know as well what it means to give, including and especially Solomon. And I can tell you just, can I just hear a testimony? I wasn't planning on sharing this, but just a testimony. God this week has shown our kids how he provides in a very special way. 
And I am grateful for that because I, I want them to know that, that mom and dad invest in the kingdom. And no matter what, that when, uh, when all is said and done, we hope to leave them a little something, but we hope to leave a whole lot more in heaven. All right, y'all? Uh, and set an example for them. And God just blessed and met a need in a very special way, just out of the blue this, this week. And I'm just grateful for God for that. If you have your Bibles, would you find Revelation chapter 11? I'm going to segue back into this passage. And uh, if you were paying attention to the reading, you'll note that we read 14 verses. But this morning, I only plan to cover the first two. And that helps us to get back into the study of Revelation. It also, I think, should assist you who are here and were not a part of our original study for the first 10 chapters to get caught up a little bit, to get caught up a little bit. Uh, I want to bring you in on this conversation. I think some questions come up, and anytime you do Bible study, it's helpful to simply ask yourself questions. As you read the first two verses, you have some questions. You go into the next three through 14, you have other questions. But I think the first question is this, John is going to be measuring a temple. What temple is he going to measure? We're told it's in the holy city, and I think all of us are aware the holy city is Jerusalem. So he's going to measure a temple in Jerusalem. Now, it's somewhat problematic if uh, you think about it, because when John wrote Revelation, he is an elderly man, most likely in his 90s, most likely in his 90s. He has already seen the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that occurred in A.D. 70. You know, Jesus said in Mark 13, Matthew 24, as he looked at the temple with the disciples who were gawking at it because it was such an amazing building with large stones that absolutely would blow your mind to think that cranes could actually put them in place, but they actually put these in place without cranes, that Jesus would say, not one stone would be left upon another. And you know, Jesus' words came true in A.D. 70. And John knew that, and now he's writing, and he's going to measure a temple. So what temple? Because there's no temple in Jerusalem. And then he has to go beyond that and measure an altar and people. And who are these people he's not supposed to measure? What is that all about? And I think as you begin to ask yourself these questions, and, and that begins to swirl in your mind, you're going down the right track because you want to answer those questions. You want to answer those questions. Charles Spurgeon was asked by a critic of the Bible about a very difficult passage. Spurgeon was a Puritan pastor in the late 19th century, one of the greatest preachers, I guess it's Paul. And Spurgeon was asked about this, this scripture. What does this mean? This critic asked. And Spurgeon said, what do you mean? What does it mean? I can tell you exactly what it means. It means exactly what it says. I love that answer. Because when you come to answer questions from the Scripture like I just asked, the best thing to do is not to run to uh, WebMD, God help us, or Theology MD on the web, or to commentaries or other people's writings. But let's see what God's Word says about what's here. And I think when we do that, we can leave with confidence knowing exactly what the message is for the people that John wrote to, but as well, the message for us today. So we need a message, and I believe we have a message here. 
So let's read. If you're uh, there in Revelation 1, and I know you've stood, but would you stand one more time? And let's read the, the I'm going to read three verses. I know I'm only covering two, but I'm going to go ahead and read three. If you don't have a Bible, I, uh, there should be one right there with you uh, in the shares, or you can open up your device. I'll read out of the English Standard Version. Verse 1, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. All right, so I see this is clear instruction for John. He is to rise up, he's to measure a temple, but there are some things he's not to measure. He's to leave out, for that is given to the nations, these people outside the court are given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. You have that uh, number, 1,260, 42 months, three and a half years throughout the book of Revelation and also in prophecy in the Old Testament. We'll get to that more uh, specifically in days to come. But know this, know this, that this happens at a very special time in a period known as the Tribulation. Matthew adds an adjective, great, the great tribulation. So right away we recognize there's going to be a temple that is erected where people actually worship in Jerusalem during a tribulation period in the future. In the future. Father, help us to understand this text and to apply it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. All right, let's just jump into this. Verse 1, I want you to see that this is given to us, this passage during an interlude, a silent interlude, in fact. Verse 1, verse 1, then, if you take notes or you like to write in your Bible, you might just want to circle the word then, then, because it is significant. Something has happened, then something else is going to happen. What happened before John is told to measure? Well, trumpets are blown. There was a trumpet. The sixth trumpet that was blown was given by God, by an angel, to sound. Trumpets always are symbolic for something. Trumpets are symbolic for judgment in the Bible. So up to the sixth trumpet, there have been five others blown, all showing that God will judge the earth. It is pretty, uh, I mean, it's absolutely amazing to read these judgments. They're judgments of death and destruction, demons like coming up out of the ground who have been in jail since early in creation, and they are devastating people, and people are dying and be deceived by the, these demons. And all of this going on, it's just a desperate time, a time like never before. And in the middle of that, just desperation of the world, God puts the pause button on and gives a respite or an interlude, right? And, and just, just write this down somewhere. Hey, just as an aside, because this is a good principle, God always knows when we need a rest. We think we need a rest. God knows when we need a rest. Six days did God create the earth, and on the seventh day, He rested. I hope you rest. God knows we need rest. Every once in a while, I'll throw in some corny humor or seem to digress a little bit. It's only because I'm looking out there and I'm like, these guys need a rest. So if you can't laugh with me, laugh at me. 
But this is between the sixth and seventh trumpet. Not only that, and you can go back and read what goes on up to the sixth trumpet. I don't have time this morning to walk through all of that, all the death and devastation. But John's given something. It's really unique. He's given a little book. And an angel in uh, the previous chapter, chapter 10, uh, during this interlude, gives him a book. He takes the book. He's told, eat the book. <laughs> eat the book. Isn't that strange? It's not really that strange as it relates to the Bible, because in the Old Testament, you, have, you, you will see where Ezekiel also eats a scroll. But the idea, it, it, he, he eats this book, and, and the eating of this book is symbolic. He eats it, but, it's, but it means something. It means that he's digesting Okay, so what is the book? It's the Word of God. It's not all of it, but it's a part of it. It's the truth. John said that truth, which is the Word of God, about what is to happen, what's about to occur, was sweet in my mouth. I don't have to speculate as to what was sweet about what he ate, the truth of God that was about to occur. Jesus is about to take over, y'all. And, and he's like... Jesus is about to take over. That's sweet. But before he does, there's some things that he sees that makes him sick at his stomach. The little book is sweet and bitter, or we would say it's bittersweet. It's sweet because of the outcome. It's bitter because of what it's going to take to get there. Y'all following this? All right. No pain, no gain. You know that one. I mean, a lot of pain, but an ultimate gain. So he says it's sweet. And then, all right, I've covered one word so far. How do you like that? Let's go a little further in this. Then, I was given a measuring rod like a staff. Now this, during this silent interlude, we have a sobering instrument. Why do I call it a sobering instrument? Well, because of what this rod represents. Now this rod is not unfamiliar to John. Throughout the Old Testament, men were given rods to measure certain properties or places, even people, always as a representation of two important things, two important things. One, you measure for God, you measure for God with this rod, what belongs to God. Have you had a survey of your property? You want to put up a fence, what property belongs to me and where do I put the fence? Measure out what belongs to me. You can go through Old Testament Scripture, and you can see that this is a regular occurrence. Ezekiel measures, as it were, the temple with a rod in there, we're told in Ezekiel 42, verse 16, that rod was nine feet long. He's measuring what belongs to God. This happens again in Revelation 21, verse 15. And the one who spoke to me, John talking, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, and its gates and its walls. So the new Jerusalem that's coming, the new heaven actually has measurements, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles high. And John measures that and gives us the measurements. But it's, just, it's a demonstration of this is God's city, my city. One important thing that Rod always, always in the Old Testament, and we read in Revelation, symbolizes ownership or, or, it symbolizes a second thing. 
judgment. Y'all know Matthew 7, 1, it's the, it's the most quoted verse in all the Bible. Like, people quote it on uh, YouTube all the time when they're talking to Christians. Judge not that, help me out, lest you be judged. Judge not that you be not judged. Verse 2 says, and it's taken out of context, but verse 2 says, for what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with what measurement you measure, you will be measured. Will you measure up? We use that term, right? Does that guy, do they measure up? Same word in the Greek in Matthew 7, 2, as in Revelation here. So what we have is a rod that says, this belongs to me, however, I'm measuring what judgment I'm going to measure out. So are you following this so far? John, I want you to go to measure my temple. It belongs to me, but I'm going to judge it. Now, if you have ever read the Old Testament, you know that in the Old Testament, on two occasions in particular, you can think about when the temple was erected, people were worshiping God at the temple all the way into the time of Jesus a third time, and they were worshiping at the temple in a way that was not God-honoring. Amen, right? That happened. And here we see it again. Just because there's a temple erected in the tribulation period does not mean that men and women are coming to the temple to worship God in a Christ-exalting way. So you see this in verse 1 where uh, we see John is to rise up and measure this temple. You see the symbolic involvement of the prophet, right? It's not only that, John, I want you to know what's going on. I want you involved in this symbolism. I want you, by your involvement and by this measuring, right, to show people, show people that the exaltation of Christ is utmost, worship of God has to be done in the right way, and Jesus Christ reigns, so I want you involved in that, in, in that, in that prophecy. It, it, this wasn't unique. Jeremiah, the prophet, walked around literally with a yoke on his shoulder, which was off of an animal, a an oxen or some sort of bull, and it was used for farming. It was used to tie that animal into another animal and therefore to serve the farmer, right? And so you're in bondage. And so to preach to people that they were under bondage because of their idolatry and immorality, he wore this as a symbol. Could you imagine going to work tomorrow with like, you go out to a barn, you get a yoke on, you wear it to work, and people are like, what is that? Well, I just want you to know this is a symbol of the bondage you're in because of your sin. Well, this isn't unique to Jeremiah. Lots of prophets did this. You can go back in the Old Testament. You can see they did things that were absolutely amazing and sometimes would do things for months and years at a time to symbolize what was going on. By the way, this is an important principle here. I believe Jesus Christ is coming back. I believe he reigns now. And my life, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be a symbol of that. And so is yours. Jesus said, let your good works be seen so that men might glorify your Father who is in heaven. When we put up the beyond wall and we asked you guys to think about what God was challenging you in and Stepping out of maybe where you were and doing something that you knew he was calling you to. 
I had no idea that you would respond the way you did so wonderfully. It's a symbol. It's symbolic of here's where I am, and I know where God's calling me, and I want to be obedient. I'm going to step out beyond where I am, if you will, into obedience. I've had people send me texts and emails. I've had handwritten notes on several occasions, and I've opened it up, and it's been just sweet, sweet notes. About, this is what God's doing in my life. I may never divulge confidence, but I'm just talking about people that have struggled with things for years saying, I know I need to step out and trust God. I know I need to step out and forgive. I know I need to do this with my family. I know I need to deal with my anger. On and on it goes. And some of you actually put that on walls. And what is that a symbol of? God's working, stirring in your spirit to step out and trust Him in faith. I think that's awesome. Because God does involve us in the message of the gospel so that our lives, by the way we live them, our speech, the way we talk, and our actions, the way we have an attitude, can show people, show people that we truly believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of our life and that he's coming back. And since he is, we don't just live for this world. That's good for news for us because everywhere we are, there are people who are not paying attention to the fact that Jesus reigns and that he is coming back. Their hope is in November 6th. Their hope is in lots of other things. They get their head down, they're doing their work, they're putting things together and trying to make things happen. Their hope is in all kinds of things, but not Christ. And then they look at you and they say, what is wrong with you? It's as if you think that Jesus Christ really is Lord and that he's coming back and you would say, I do. So whether you're in the bleachers or in the break room, family dinner on Facebook, you have the opportunity with your life to be a symbol of the fact that you believe Jesus Christ really is Lord. And then you begin to think about your life differently. And therefore, when people call you on the phone to make a sales call, I'm preaching, can I preach to Scott for a minute? And I think, I don't need a car warranty. And I say to this person, I'm tired of you calling me, or do I take advantage of, I've got, uh, I've got them on the hook. I don't need a warranty, but let me tell you uh, something that I think all of us need, and that's a relationship with Jesus Christ, and do you have one? I was... Uh, John Brown was in our last service. John Brown's been, uh, he and Kim, such a great blessing to our church. But John was on sales calls. He was making sales calls in South Georgia, a little town called Waycross, Georgia. Just a regular day for John, making sales calls, trying to make his quota, walks in, talks to the gentleman who owns the business. The man listened to what John had to say. The man said, John, can I talk to you for a minute? Yeah, you can talk to me. John, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? John did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that man, long story, led John Brown to Jesus Christ. I'm grateful that that man saw his life as part of a gospel message. And John, for years, will go, and every year did he get saved on his birthday, spiritual birthday, go and tell that man, thank you for leading me to Jesus. Sometimes we can get our heads down, can't we? We can get busy, we can get to work and forget that my life, my work, my business, my actions, my speech, everything that I do can be used as a symbol of God's message to people. Last week we were baptized at Mission City Church and it was wonderful to see that testimony of them baptizing in that baptistry. And it's not a horse trough, y'all. Someone said, did you see that horse trough they baptized in? It's not a horse trough. Horse never drank out of it. It's a baptistry. 
And I think about Philip Skarnecki, who's the pastor there, and his wife Erin, and Philip, who got saved here at Hibernia. And we were talking this week, and he was recounting his testimony and how he got saved. And he was talking to me all about, hey, you know, pastor, you don't hardly ever give a second invitation, but you gave a second invitation that day. And I said, well, okay, I got to quit playing around. I got saved. And then he said, man, you know, as, as he hears his testimony, God's working in his heart. And he goes to North Carolina, and he works for this really well-known company. If I were to name it, you would have heard of it on a sales call. And he walks into the office of a real powerful man who owns a business, and he sits down and he gives a sales pitch. And the man across the desk says, I need to talk to you, comes around from the desk, gets in a chair, kicks his feet up on a coffee table and says, Philip, what are you doing? And Philip says, well, I'm trying to sell you A, B, and C. And he says, no, 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 what are you doing? And Philip says, what do you mean? Philip, why aren't you in ministry? He had no idea that Philip had been wrestling with that. God had been calling him. And here a guy is in work, has lots to do, lots of things to take care of, probably deadlines and people waiting on him, walks around his desk, realizes I'm part of the message of God. I, I, I probably spent maybe more time here than I needed to. I, I don't know. But I think sometimes we just can get encouraged that, you know what? God has a message, and sometimes he uses little old us to get that message across. John, I want you involved in this. I want you to grab the measuring rod, and I want you to go and see the temple. Now, I won't have time today to talk about this temple and the uh, prophecy of why it's there, but I do believe that this is a future temple, as I have demonstrated just for the reason that there is no temple in Jerusalem when John writes Revelation. So there has to be one written in the future or built in the future. But I want to move on because John not only measures the temple, but remember, what are the two reasons that you measure? What are the two reasons in the Bible that you have a symbolic rod? Remember, what are they? Possession, judgment. Temple belongs to God, temple under judgment. That's pretty clear. Now also look with me in verse 1. I want you to measure the altar. And I want you to measure the people who worship there. So what is the altar? Well, that's the place in the uh, court area that those who came to worship brought their sacrifices. That's what it was. So I want you to measure, I want you to measure the quality of these sacrifices. I want you to measure, these are my sacrifices they're offering to me. They, they, they should be offering sacrifices to me because these are mine. But since they're not being offered in the right way, they're not being blessed. They're like Cain, who offered his sacrifices to God, but were rejected. He should, have, he should have sacrificed to God, but he did it in the wrong way. They were rejected. That tells me, and I need to mark this, I can offer a sacrifice to God, and God rejected. I des he deserves my sacrifices, but I must do them in the right way. Or else, they're not blessed. It also tells us that these people who are offering sacrifices recognize that in order to approach God, that there has to be some sort of atonement for their sin. Like I just can't walk in and waltz up to God and say, hey, here I am. Hey, are you the man upstairs? No, they have too much reverence for that. There's now a new temple and a veil that's already then now reconstructed and now sown that keeps them from coming into the very presence of God. So they know, I'm sinful, I've got to offer something to God in order to enter His presence. The problem is, the problem is, and there's a problem here, 
And we know the problem because John not only measures the temple, he measures the worship sacrifices, he measures the people. The problem is they know they need something to atone for their sin, but what they're offering is not what God requires. They have reverted back to Old Testament law. They are sacrificing under the Mosaic system. And if you follow the Scriptures, you know that when Jesus came, He did not come to do away with that law, but He came instead to complete that law. And He did fulfill the law when He died on the cross. And He said, y'all, it is finished. He became the final sacrifice. For our sin, Jew and Gentile. And when he was on the cross, he prayed this prayer, Father, forgive them. And you know what the Father did? Accepted that sacrifice of Jesus on that cruel criminal cross, proving it because he raised him from the dead. And there's an empty tomb that says that is an acceptable sacrifice. And John the Baptist, the prophet said, Jesus is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So the problem, the problem in Revelation 11 is that you have people at the right place offering sacrifices in the wrong way. They're not exalting Christ. This tells us the way we worship is everything to God. In John chapter 4, there was a woman that Jesus met with, and she was a Samaritan woman. She was asking Jesus, you know, our people worship on some mountain, and your people worship on another mountain, talking about the temple of the Jews. Which is the right place? And Jesus said, listen, I'm going to paraphrase. It's not about the place. God is searching for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. The the Samaritans worshiped in a lot of spirit. They could raise their hands. They saw visions. They saw all types of miracles. And they worshiped in ecstatic ways, but they didn't have the truth. And it wasn't real worship. It wasn't real worship. Real worship is always rooted in truth, biblical truth. Worship is never meaningless. It's always meaningful, and it's never mindless. It's always minded. So you have the opposite happening in Jerusalem, however. You have the people worshiping according to the law, but there was no heart in it. They worshiped the Lord with their lips, but where was their heart, Jesus said? Far from me. That's unacceptable worship. This is why I think when John ate that scroll, it was sweet. Because he knew Jesus would be glorified, magnified on his throne. Every knee would bow down and worship him the way they should. Bringing sacrifices to the Lord in the appropriate way. But bitter because he knew the suffering his people would go through to get there. Because God does today what he's always done. He will even use evil to get the attention of the people of God so that they would repent and return and worship properly. Think about the Old Testament. Habakkuk would ask, would you use evil people to come and judge us? But God would even use an antichrist. Who will do this unimaginably, sign a peace treaty, 
with Israel, that little sliver of land that's in the news every single day, whom people hate even to this day, which is an amazing to think of because it's still here. There have been so many that are trying to eradicate the Israeli people, but they're still here. And the reason is they're the hinge of human history. And during a time when the world just loves Mother Nature, worships at the feet of the environmentalists, they're going to allow Israel to build a temple where the Dome of the Rock is, of all places, on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And there's going to be an opportunity for them to sacrifice animals and slaughter these animals in the presence of all these environmentalists. Wonders of all wonders. But then, three and a half years into this piece, this Antichrist shows his true colors, and that is he desires to be worshipped and exalted above all others, to be worshipped as God, as we read already in Revelation 11. And as Jesus has taught us in Matthew chapter 24, as Daniel has pointed out in Daniel chapter 9, and he is coming in to do what is known as the abomination of desolation. He will, he will do what is abominable in that temple. He will desecrate that temple because he's coming in, kicking the Jews out, and he will devastate, he will devastate that temple. Why? Because that temple is going to be emptied of all of the worshipers. And Jesus said, it's in that day that you run to the mountains as quickly as you can in Matthew chapter 24, in Mark chapter 13. And if you're pregnant or have child, I have woe on you or I feel sorry for you. Because why? You're not going to be able to move fast enough to, under, to, to, to get away from the wrath of this Antichrist who's going to try to kill all of the Jewish people. But... They're God's people. And though they're under judgment, and they are, they're also at the same time under protection. And Paul said in Romans eleven twenty four and following, these things are happening to the Jews. Why? So that all of Israel will be saved. These who have pierced the Lord Jesus Christ and crucified him, like us, are going to op have their eyes open and they're going to see the sacrifices they were making in the temple. They were shadows of the real and the real is Jesus. And Israel, under the teaching of the 144,000 witnesses and the two witnesses here in Revelation 11 are going to turn and serve the living and true Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. So, well, that's way in the future. We won't even be here, will we? I don't believe we'll be here. However, there are some things that matters to us big time about. One, every true worshiper has this in common. Every person who worships in truth has this in common. Every religion that has true worship has this. Every true denomination, every true church that worships in truth has this in common. And it's this, in every true worship, Jesus Christ is exalted. In all false worship, man is at the center of worship. No wonder we're told in Revelation 13, Revelation 13 verse 18, Hey, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. We like to skip ahead and say, oh, it's 666, but don't forget what it means. It means it is the number of man. It is the number for the exaltation of man. 
Every false religious system, every false worshiper, every false church has this in common. Man is at the center of their worship. This is true of secularism, our humanism, or everything that's wrapped up in the social justice movement. It is about man caring for man in the community. It is about man doing what's right for man and elevating man to the place man ought not to be exalted to. Every false religion is this way that teaches that there's something that you can offer to God, whether it is your penance or your money or your sorrow that God will accept, that God will accept some sacrifice in your religious system for your sin, and it is still man-centered. I am going to offer to God, and God rejects all offerings except the one that he has accepted perfectly, who is Jesus Christ. I don't know if you are following this or not, but what I want to say to you is it's possible to offer God worship and Jesus not be the center of your worship. Therefore, even as a believer, our worship is rejected. Uh, I'll, I'll bring this to some application so we can come to a response. How do I know that my worship is, is exalting Jesus? Well, number one, I, I know my worship is exalting Jesus if I listen to the words of Jesus and that He is looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth. So number one, is my worship biblical? Is my worship biblical? Listen, I, I left here out of church last week. I turned on Jay Vernon McGee. Do y'all listen to Jay Vernon McGee? I love him. Jerusalem. I mean, that's the love the way he says that. Jerusalem. J. Vernon McGee is with the Lord now. And he was telling the story of how that he had met a man who drove him around from this particular church. And this man was a pillar in his church, faithful, outspoken Christian in that church. While he drove him around, he was telling J. Vernon McGee, J. Vernon McGee, I want to tell you, I had a miracle take place in my life. What was that miracle? I had my sinuses healed. He went on and on about how that happened. How did that happen? I met a healer, and a healer healed me. It wasn't about God healing him, but a healer met him, had healed him. And he went on and on. Finally, when he got... J. Vernon McGee to his hotel. J. Vernon McGee said, let me just ask you a question, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the question? He said, all, you know, when Jesus was on the earth, he healed people, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Where are all those people right now that Jesus healed? And the man said, well, um, they're dead. He said, that's right. He said, but also Jesus saved a lot of people. Where are the people that Jesus saved? He said, well, uh, I see where you're going with this. I, I, they're, all, they're all alive in heaven. He said, you just spent hours driving around on and on about some miracle that you received, and you've yet one time to tell me the day that Jesus saved your soul. No wonder when the disciples came back and they were rejoicing in what they did by going out and casting out devils and healing diseases, Jesus said, you want to glory in that? No glory in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. All true worship exalts Christ. All true worship, therefore, then, is biblical and is centered in truth, and that truth is the Word of God. It's one of our discipleship characteristics that we say, if you are a member of our church, then you will be like a worshiper of God. You can track yourself and see, am I, am I genuinely a worshiper of God? Well, let me ask you, are you? Are you? It, it means that you come to church every Sunday to begin with, and when we come to church on Sunday, we come to worship, and when we come to worship, we actually bring our worship with us. So worship on Sunday kind of starts before we ever get here. That's tough because sometimes when you come into church, you're just trying to find kids' shoes and clean spit up and realizing that 
your stuff's wrinkled, and, uh, and there's still idiots on the road. And sometimes they follow you into the church parking lot. <laughs> and it's really difficult to worship the Lord if you come in here like a zombie because you're so tired because you're killing zombies all night on your Xbox. Right? Or you did that late night movie and it was a great movie and a great family time, but you can't stay awake for the sermon because that movie that lasted two and a half hours, longer than our hour and a quarter service, has got you wore out. All right? Am I stepping on toes? I'm just saying, we had come prepared. And I believe that our worship on Sunday starts on Saturday night. It actually starts way before that. How do we repair, prepare ourselves for worship? Well, we come eagerly waiting to seek the Lord. And, you know, that means if I'm going to be here, a worshiper of God, and I should be, I should be, I should not forsake the assembly of myself together, that if something starts at a certain time as a worshiper of God, I should be on time. I shouldn't think of worship less than I think of my job or my school or a tardy slip that I might get at class. I, I want to be on time. And it's not always possible to be on time to work, and it's not always time, possible to be on time to worship, but it should be something we work towards for worshipers. This day matters. It's the first day of the week, and it's the first part of the first day of the week that we give to the Lord. And when we come here, we sing songs to the Lord, and we sing songs that we lean into, and I did this morning. I may lean into them a little more than you guys, because I know what I'm preaching on. The way that I lean into my Bible study class, I could not believe. I could, I, I just couldn't believe it. I go to Bible study class this morning, and my Bible study teacher is preaching from the book of Acts. He goes to Genesis, he goes to Jeremiah, and he's talking about the Jewish people coming back and the temple being built. I'm like, oh my, this is blowing my mind. We're not even on the, we're not even talking, but we're not even collaborating. But man, he's talking about my sermon, and then I come in here, and we sing about exalting Christ. And I had a whole other sermon that Rhett wrote for this morning. I wasn't going to get back in Revelation, and then here I am talking about true worship is what? Oh, Christ, be magnified. And I'm sitting there going... Are we listening to this? Are we singing this? Do I really want to be magnified in the altar, on the altar of my life? Because that's what true worship is. It's, and, and I want to encourage you when you come in here to sing. You may not, you say, I'm not a singer, but you just come into our church and you're like, do these people sing every Sunday? Yes. And, you, and sing with us. Who, who has a really pretty voice in here? We need to get all the good voices sp- spread out so you can help us who don't. Bless his heart, I was sitting by somebody this morning, he just couldn't sing, but at least he was singing. And I was thinking, if I could just have, you know, somebody else just sit on the other side that, that can sing, that would really help us both. Hey, the Bible does say to make a joyful noise, right? And when you sing these songs on the Lord's Day, when we sing these songs, listen to them. Concentrate on them. Thanksgiving's coming. I love Thanksgiving. I'm already getting ready for it. I got my brine ready for my turkey. And you dip that turkey in that brine, why? It soaks up all those juices, marinates, and gets tasty. And then when you smoke it, oh my, 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 I'm ready for it now. When I come to worship, it's what I do. I'll sit there and take notes. And on Wednesday night when Keith was preaching, I was writing everything he said, because if I can write it, I can remember it. You may be better than me, but I have to write things. I write, I remember, and then you know what I do? I soak in the brine of that message for hours, days. When you come to church, you come prepared and you listen to the songs and you lean in on the message and, and you get used to that. Can I encourage you this? I mean, I'm not the guy that says don't listen to secular music and don't do anything. I mean, we're, we're not that. I'm not even going to tell you what songs to listen to. That would be weird. I will equip you and how to listen to songs. 
And the more mature I've become in my Christian faith, the less I can listen to certain Christian stations. Take that however you want to take it, but I have a real tight filter on theology. And I don't want just brainless, nonsensical theology coming in my head. So when I tell you to listen to Christian music, let us shepherd you in that a little bit. Our music team will help you with that. But learn throughout the week to worship God with good worship music. To have it on, to listen to it. So when you come in to worship, you're, you're more prepared for worship. And then apply what's being taught. But so we're going through the message on Sunday morning. If you're in Bible study as a teenager, what, what one part of Scripture can I add to one part of my life? We have a response time. We call it the invitation. I was meeting and eating lunch with a pastor, and he said, Scott, what do I do? Um, every time I give the invitation, half the congregation leaves. That is a problem. And I think all of us kind of sometimes, you know, when it's time to finish up, you know, we used to have the offering at our churches. We used to do the offering. And offering was when ushers would pass the plates. The church I grew up, I'm talking about the church I grew up in. We did that here too. We passed plates. But we would pass the plates. And it was like, okay, uh, intermission. So what are you doing? You want to go out to eat ever? Are you going to ball game? They're an offering. Which is really one of the most worshipful times in a church service. And you say, well, we don't pass the plate here. It has little to do with COVID. It has a lot to do with other things. But one of the things is the fact that most of you give online like we do. But we have a prayer time and we have an offering time. And it's a good time to worship God to say, thank you that I can give. Or thank you that God, you give me something to give. And our offerings to the Lord. Our worship on the Lord's day should just absolutely flow in every way we worship throughout the week. As you already heard me say, work is worship because we witness at work. Our lives are involved in the message of Christ so that the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ is this, it's actually the supreme measure of our worship. When I come to the Lord's day, when I come to the house of God, when I come to family worship, when I go all through my life, what is my life about? When you come back to Revelation 11 and you see that there are those in the temple and they are offering offerings to God, but they are under judgment. They're under judgment because they weren't exalting Christ. God's not accepting the sacrifices, but He will, under His incredible love, discipline them. But don't measure the people outside the temple. Don't measure the people outside in the court of the Gentiles. They don't belong to me. They're under wrath. They will be destroyed. God disciplines his children. He destroys his enemy. Which are you? The enemies of God are those who have yet to submit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We're born enemies to God, at enmity with God. But Jesus Christ has come to make peace with God for us if we will yet turn to Him. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. Thank you that you've given us this passage and this day to study it. God, thank you that you've given us the time today to just dive into your word. And then to think about, Lord, how do we apply this to our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.